On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. On this episode, we're looking at Joe Dante's beloved dark comedy, The Burbs, from 1989. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the Klopex to my Ray Peterson, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good, Doug. I mean, we're covering... Uh, we don't on Cinema Sportsboard cover a lot of movies that I would consider like uh, foundational movies for me. We tend right. to cover things that I've, well, what's a better way of saying, uh, never fucking heard of before. That tends <laughs> to be the vibe on our show. Uh, but and, today, and, no, and movies that a lot of people haven't heard of, lest, yeah. <laughs> lest they be interested in ever checking out our podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we try to alienate as many people as possible. But uh but today we're talking about a movie that, um, regardless of how we might feel about it as adults, I have seen hundreds of times because I was so obsessed with it as a kid. Now, I, I do want to talk about that a little bit in terms of your life experience with it. And, you know, I also want to mention, Liam, you know, on this show before, we have joked a little bit about the idea that Joe Dante, the director of this, might be your father. Yeah, Remember that's that? True. Remember we've yeah, talked no, about I this do. several you, times? You have said that many times. Because your mother went to school with him. It's and true. it would have... It coincided uh, with the time that uh, you would have been conceived. Well, that's not true, but that's and probably fair. right around that time. No, not even close, actually. But sure, whatever you want to say. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm going to send a DM to Joe Dante just to confirm some of the dates. Find say, out. I he... know your son, you motherfucker. <laughs> and he's been struggling, man. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'll get your take on the verbs in just a second. Well, I guess that's what the whole episode is about. Our guest today is one of the hosts of the Hit Factory podcast. It's Aaron Casillas. How are you doing today, Aaron? Oh, Doug, Liam, uh, I'm doing great this evening. Uh, thank you so very much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's a privilege. Uh, very excited to be here to talk about the verbs with you all. When it reached the beginning of 2022, I bet you didn't think, you know what? At some point in this year, someone is going to ask me to be on a Dick Miller themed podcast. I never think things like that. Mm. Absolutely mm -hmm. not. However, uh, I have been following uh, the Smorgasbord for a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. I was a big fan of your uh, Jodo podcast. I, I grew up a, a big Jodorowsky fan uh, and so had had fun listening to some of those. And uh, Well, let's yeah, talk about so... that instead of the burbs. Let's talk about <laughs> your, your, your fandom of Alejandro Jodorowsky. R rank for me these three movies, El Topo, The Holy Mountain, and Santa Sangre. Ooh. You know, I'm mm -hmm. gonna I'm gonna actually immediately discredit myself and say that I have not seen Santa Sangre. Uh, <laughs> That's not discrediting. The yourself. podcast is over. It's, no, 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 Liam. A, be nice, Liam. <laughs> but B, this this is a great thing. It means that you have this amazing movie that you've yet to watch. It's just yeah. something that you can treat yourself with later. It's a good thing, I say. So now Absolutely. you have to rank the other two, certainly. Well, I will. I will go ahead and put uh, the Holy Mountain at the top of my list. Ah. At, at the, it is the apex mountain for me. Uh, to quote a, a, a little uh, thing from a different podcast, but it, it is the peak of Jodorowsky's power, uh, in my opinion. I love El Topo too. Definitely like a, a second there. Um, and really, I kind of go go backwards in time with with his filmography in terms of stuff I've seen. Like I've I've, I've seen uh, Fando Elise, which I think of is course. terrific, mm -hmm. and uh, his like first short film, La, La Cravate, is that the, the one? I believe that's it. Right, it means like the head or something like that. But the yes, head, yes, exactly. So uh, I, you know, I've seen all of those, uh, and then I go like way into like his more recent stuff and have seen uh, the Dance of Reality as well, which I think is also like a, a terrific work from him. 
That's what I keep hearing. I have not watched it yet, and I'm waiting to watch it until we cover it on the Joe Dawowski podcast, which you can check out at cinemasmorgasport.com. But we're not here today, surprisingly, Aaron, to talk about Alejandro Jodorowsky. <laughs> we're here to talk about The Burbs, the career of actor Dick Miller, and also Joe Dante, the director of The Burbs. But let's start with, when were you first aware that Dick Miller was an actor that existed in the world? Do you remember the first time you saw him in a movie? The very first time I saw Dick Miller, well, so I, so I have, I, I guess, a uh, multi-tiered answer to this. Please, I know, I know for certain the very first thing I ever saw Dick Miller in uh, was the Terminator, as the gun store clerk, right, uh, who gets just completely iced after selling Schwarzenegger all of his uh, ammunition and weaponry. <laughs> uh, I didn't know who Dick Miller was, I think, and he didn't make an impression until I saw um, another Joe Dante classic, Gremlins. That was that right. was the first time I really, uh, it really landed for me like, oh, this is a guy. I've seen him before. I like what he's doing. Um, and then really just kind of, you know, went from there in terms of, I, I, I've never done like a, a, a Dick Miller kind of retrospective, but every time he pops up, you know, it's he's a wonderful that guy of, of cinema that that kind of, you know, you get to notice. We just did uh, Unlawful Entry on our, mm -hmm. our show not too long ago. Had no idea that he uh, was a collaborator with Jonathan Kaplan on a lot of, of, of movies as well. Uh, so that was a, a big surprise seeing him pop up very, very briefly as like the DMV clerk. So now you've mentioned three roles that you've seen him in, and I'm sure you've seen a few more. Do you have a favorite or, or one of those that you've already mentioned a favorite Dick Miller performance? Oh, that's a good question. I, know. I mean, I, I think I think Gremlins still stands as like sure. you know, the, the sort of definitive one for me that I have seen. Uh, and then I think, you know, another one that comes to mind um, and have, have other people have probably mentioned this one, but um, as the the diner uh, waiter Absolutely. in After Hours mm -hmm. um, makes an impression immediately. Uh, it's just a great movie, you know, and he's a, he's a really fun little character part in that. You know, Aaron, I feel compelled to ask you a secondary question, not directly related to Dick Miller, which is that between Gremlins 1 and 2, which one do you prefer? Great question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I have I have seen the original Gremlins uh, much more recently than I have mm. too. I know as a kid, I thought two was the superior piece because it was a lot zanier. It was a little bit more uh, explicitly a comedy. Sure. Uh, but I think I still have to give it to that first one. I, I've just seen it so many times. It's the one that was like the, my, my entry point with Joe Dante um, and has been in my life for as long as I've been a movie watcher. Now, Aaron, you are one of the hosts of the Hit Factory podcast. Tell me a little bit about this podcast. Yeah, of course. Uh, so Hit Factory Pod, Hit Factory Podcast, uh, is a podcast about the films of the 1990s. Uh, while that basic premise there might sound like we often dip into and, and really relish nostalgia, uh, I would actually say that my co-host uh, Carly and I are actually... Uh, very averse to just blatant uh, nostalgic kind of reflection on these movies and actually take a pretty critical lens with a lot of them. Sure. Uh, often approach things from kind of a, a leftist like political persuasion as well. Um, but unlike a lot of our other uh, kind of comrades and, and compatriots in terms of uh, political uh, valences with these movies. I think that we don't look at it just from that perspective. We sure. just kind of see politics as, you know, kind of uh, one arrow in the quiver, so to speak, with which to kind of address and, and analyze these movies. So 
there's no real rhyme or reason to which ones we pick. It's often kind of something that we go with based on uh, relevance or timeliness, if, if it's uh, you know, a movie that's in conversation for an anniversary or what have you, um, or something that one of our great guests uh, picks. So we, uh, we just kind of roll with it and uh, have, yeah, just we just rounded the corner. We just uh, wrapped 100 episodes of the show, which is a big mm. milestone for us. I never thought we would get there, uh, and hopefully we'll be doing it for a long time to come. That perspective that you bring to those 90s works it's one of the things that stuck out to me both in your podcasting but also in your social media uh, and it's one of the reasons that i invited you on here in the first place not because i want you to <laughs> to examine what we're going to be talking about today or really anything through that lens especially explicitly through that lens but it's something that liam and i struggle with a little bit right i mean we have a podcast devoted to italian euro crime movies from the 1970s and those are movies that take generally a uh, right-wing view of crime and criminals and, and they pump up the police. And it's something that we, you know, we openly discuss, are we being ridiculous trying to view this from the lens of 2022? Are we being ridiculous thinking it through the view of American or Canadian politics, in my case? Uh, and it's something that I think we're going to struggle with a little bit, even when talking about The Burbs. Now, The Burbs came out in 1989, Aaron. Is this a film that feels to you more like an 80s movie or a 90s movie? That's such a good question. You know, uh, despite her absence today on the show, uh, Carly did watch along with me uh, when we when we revisited the Burbs for this mm -hmm. this program. Uh, and when we first put it on, Carly said to me, "This movie feels very '80s." Uh, when when she also asked, you know, like what what year it came out, I said '89, and I said, "Really?" Because I think of it as a, a pretty '90s movie. So we disagreed <laughs> on this part. Uh, but I think it, it really functions well as one of those kind of like cusp sort of movies, you know, like we're uh, still definitely operating on a lot of the frequencies of, you know, kind of like the, the Reagan uh, era and, and into so. like the Bush years. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it certainly has a lot of preoccupations and things on its mind that feel like early 90s, specifically it's kind of. Uh, vision of you know suburbia and and all of the kind of inner workings of that uh, something that Joe Dante loves to talk about uh, clearly and and explore I think a lot of his movies kind of are about the sort of uh, underbelly of what happens in these so-called like pristine communities um, absolutely yeah. yeah you know it's interesting there are some people who have you know that that feeling that like the 90s didn't start until like 1992 right and then there's sometimes these clear markations where a decade ends and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, in 1990 or things uh, along those lines. It's something that I want to talk about a little bit more, bit more when we get, some, get into the movie proper. But before we do that, Liam, you mentioned that this is a foundational movie for you. I want you to expound on that a little bit. Uh, is this a movie that you saw at a very young age? Oh, yeah. Well, it's and it's one that both I rented a few times but also was on TV all the time. Like it just felt like so many moments in my life I could turn on the television and there's the burbs. Just like, oh, this again, okay. Um, and one of the things about it though is that, um, I don't know if either one of you have had this experience. If you've watched something on TV enough times in sort of truncated forms and unfinished forms, when you return to it and it's um, unedited for TV, full version, there's things about it that surprise you that you kind of forgot were in the movie. Uh, and that happened to me somewhere after college. I showed this to a friend 
And like, even though parts of it were like in my brain, like I just knew it, you know, there were other aspects that I don't know if they were cut from TV or if I just didn't finish watching it on TV that I didn't realize were there. And I kind of came back to it again. I guess it sort of faded. Like it, it was, it was always there through like, 10 to like 18 like i just would watch it randomly and then somewhere in my like mid to later 20s i watched it again and i was like oh wait this is actually good this isn't just (laughs) i liked it when i was a kid good which you know i've said it before but i'll say it again uh re-watching the golden child was a real (laughs) revelation that my taste as a kid was bad um but you know sometimes i would come back to things i loved as a child and be like no i think this is actually pretty cool um and one of the things that's interesting i think aaron you mentioned this idea that um that there's like a darker side to Americana that's present in at least a few Joe Dante films. And, uh, and for some reason that rang f- true for me, Doug, at a young age. Although mm. to be fair, you know, this is 89, right? So by 89, I'm already 10. I'm pretty sure by the time I was like 11 or 12, I knew all the words to public enemies, fear of a blank black planet. So <laughs> the idea that I'm like surprised, like, yeah, I remember thinking there was something somewhat critical of American life in this. It's weird. I cared about that as a kid. It's like, bro, like, like you were into weird shit when you were pretty young. I mean, I tell people all the time because, like, um, when I got into punk stuff, it, it actually made sense to me because I had been listening to so much like hip hop that sure. like when I heard a bunch of angry people from earlier, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Of course they hate the government. Who doesn't hate the government? Like what's going on? You know? So, uh, but it, it is, it is, uh, it is one of those things where I think it's also the style of humor, you know, the way that uh, this version of Tom Hanks, like this is, this is still like Tom Hanks hasn't been this screaming man in the street with a bandage on his face for a long time <laughs> and so there was something about this era of tom hanks uh i would also uh mention joe versus the volcano or uh any number of other movies uh from that earlier period that i thought of him in a certain way sure that kind like of splash or bachelor party or something yeah, like that. and that broke in the 90s right it, yeah. it, it specifically philadelphia crushed yeah, all of my <laughs> ideas and as someone from philadelphia i very much cared about that movie too but suddenly i had to think of tom hanks as a different actor and i think everybody did you know yeah i think it's, he's been that kind of actor for so long that i think for a lot of people they might be surprised to see the kind right. of performance he gives in the burbs uh but we'll talk about that performance in just a little bit too aaron how about yourself when was the first time that you saw this film you know it's funny you ask doug it's uh it's a movie that i you know to my core knew i had seen many many mm-hmm. times growing up like as a kid it was always on like premium cable when I was when I was uh, you know in my parents' house it was uh, you know early late late nineties early aughts is probably when sure. I was watching it uh, and it was always on like HBO or or Showtime or Cinemax or one of those uh, when I watched it and revisited it this time this was probably the first time in God maybe like fifteen years longer than that right. and I I quickly realized uh, that I have mostly only seen like the last hour like hour 15 of this movie like whenever i put it on it was already like you know into the story like i caught it like when it was on tv uh and like never started it from like the opening credits and was like i I have no recollection whatsoever of this um but there are other parts of it that are like imprinted into my mind specifically 
you know the the joke with uh, Art Art the the character. What's the the actor's name? Rick uh, Rick DeCommon, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And and him and Carrie Fisher as as Carol and her saying like, uh, you know, I, he can't come out and play until he starts resembling the man that I married. <laughs> and and Rick uh, DeCommon says. Carol, we don't have that kind of time. And like that that joke <laughs> to me so is like good. perfect. And like I, I still laughed at it this time and, and I remembered this time around seeing it that like the the intonation of it, the delivery that he he has there is like it's imprinted on my brain. Um so like I don't I wouldn't say this was like a, a formative movie for me. I think that a lot of other Dante stuff I, I had seen earlier, Explorers, Gremlins, like I mentioned. Sure. Um, but I definitely like at a, at a certain point, like my adolescent and like teen years came to this one and uh, really liked it, despite, you know, that also being kind of like the advent of like Internet criticism and like blogging and specifically Rotten Tomatoes. And right. remember being like, ooh, I don't feel like I'm allowed to like this movie because <laughs> uh, it, it's got like a bad tomato score. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people don't like it. People kind of talk about it being sort of a, a lesser Dante work. I don't know. Every time I put it on it, I have a good time. Um so yeah, I, I think it was it was an interesting relationship I've had with it where I think I kind of uh, liked it, was butting up against a lot of stuff that tried to convince me not to like it, uh, right. which I, I kind of listened to when I was in a very sort of like uh, uh, young age and and you know uh, more uh, privy to that kind of stuff and and more influenced by it. And now I'm just sort of leveled out to, I think it's a, I think it's a good fun romp of a movie. It's, it's clever. It's funny. It's, it's a good time. In some ways it's a little bit more, maybe mature is not the right word, but it's not as easy. It's not easily digestible like gremlins or maybe even some of other Joe Dante's earlier movies. It feels a little bit more mature, almost like something like a matinee, but obviously matinee is a lot more restrained than the burbs is. It feels very much like a Joe Dante movie, at its core, and I think it's a movie that its reputation has really increased, particularly over the last 15, 20 years or so. It feels like this is a movie that generally is considered, if not top-tier Dante, then certainly in that, you know, inner space level right below that. Uh, it is a movie that I saw many, many times, probably in a very similar uh, circumstance to you, Liam. Uh, in, like, the early 90s, my brothers and I probably would have watched it. By that point, I was through my, like, kind of childhood shitty taste uh, you know, period. One where, I, like, I, I say this all the time. When I was a kid in, like, the mid-80s, 86, 87, Star Wars, Crawl, they were the exact same level of quality to me. Like, the, the, those movies are just movies that I watched as a kid. And, like, there's a thousand movies that are like that. Like, Missing in Action, <laughs> right? Those shitty Chuck Norris movies. Uh, Eliminators, the Charles Band movie. All these movies are just in this soup. Actually, one of the movies that got added, added to that today was uh, the Garbage Pail Kids movie, which I saw a video oh, on YouTube shit. about that yeah. today. I saw that as a kid. I have it on Blu-ray, and I rewatched it, and I was like, what the fuck was wrong with me? Because I thought that movie was excellent when I was a kid. <laughs> like my, my t- what I wanted out of a movie was just a very different thing. But I'll tell you, Aaron, what you were saying is so true. So many of these movies I watched on TV, and you know when you finally get now as as a mature adult start watching on dvd or blu-ray or even uh, you know some sort of streaming option you find out that you have no familiarity with like the first 20 minutes all the setup is stuff that you either missed or maybe saw once as opposed to the 30 times you saw everything else uh, and that that's that's sort of the case with the burbs where certainly the last hour is the thing that kind of connects to my brain and embarrassingly enough all the Corey feldman stuff which to me in the early 90s was look how cool this guy is uh who knew that he would still be that exact guy in 2022 
let us take a break. When we return, it feels like we've been talking about the Burbs a lot. Let's get into it in a little more detail when we get back 1989's The Burbs. All Tom Hanks wanted was a quiet vacation at home. This is what I need, Carol. I, I need this. Welcome to Mayfield Place. A typical street in the Burbs. Morning, Walter! Where nothing much ever happened. Walter's dog just took a dump on Rumsfield's lawn again. Until the Clopex moved in. Clopex? Clopex. Clopex. No one goes in, no one comes out. Neighbors from hell. It was a nice place to live. He said he thinks the Clopex are evil incarnate. Well, you're much too smart to fall for that, aren't you, honey? But now... Carol! You wouldn't want to visit there. Ray, this is Walter. No! The Burbs. I'm going over the fence, and I'm not coming back till I find a dead body. An overstressed suburbanite and his neighbors are convinced that the new family on the block is part of a murderous satanic cult. It's 1989's The Burbs, directed, as we've mentioned many times at this point, by Joe Dante, the director of the Howling Gremlins Explorers, which uh, we've all we've covered all of them on the show thus far. Uh, and he may be the director most associated with Dick Miller, which is why we've been trying to sort of um, spread out his movies on this podcast. Sure, we don't yeah. run run through them too quickly. Also, the director, as we mentioned, Piranha, Small Soldiers, Matinee, etc. Written by Dana Olson. Uh, he's the co-creator of Henry Danger, which is a kids movie. He uh, created that with the uh, total piece of shit scumbag uh, Dan Schneider. He also wrote the George of the Jungle movie, Liam. That's exciting. As well as the Inspector Gadget movie. He has, uh, certainly has a wheelhouse. Not really the kind of dark sensibility you think would be, uh, you know, the, would go along with the burbs, but maybe, you know, he was chasing the money. I don't want to make a comment. I don't know anything about Dana Olson. Cast uh, includes Tom Hanks, as you mentioned. It stars as Ray Peterson, Bruce Dern as Mark Rumsfeld, Carrie Fisher as Carol Peterson, Rick Ducumin, the great Canadian Rick Ducumin, unfortunately passed away uh, as Art uh, Weingartner, Corey Feldman, uh, other familiar faces here as well, including Henry Gibson, Brother Theodore, and Courtney Gaines from the Children of the Corn movie. Uh, and of course, we were going to talk about Dick Miller and Robert Picardo in just a little bit, playing Garbage Men in the movie. But before we get into all of that, I feel like we already got a sense of this, but I really want to get it down on paper, starting with our guest, Aaron. Aaron, what do you think about the burbs? Oh boy, I'll try to be succinct about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, I really like the Burbs. I, I have seen it several times in its entirety, not that many times, clearly, as I already mentioned on the show. Uh, but, you know, at, at least like the kind of like back half of this movie, I've, I've seen quite a bit. It uh, It is pretty well imprinted on my brain. Um, I think it has a great Tom Hanks performance at the center of it. Um, we've already mentioned already. It is like, you know, very uh, like set upon like Tom Hanks, like like shouty, like really yes. aggravated, and very much so. Tom Hanks. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, the cast is just stellar here. Here's here's how little uh, I have seen of the first part of this movie. Never registered before that Carrie Fisher is is the <laughs> wife in this movie, despite being a huge Star Wars fan growing up. Like never noticed it. Uh, and also like Wendy Shaw as uh, Bruce Dern's wife Bonnie in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, would have been very formative for me uh, as an adolescent boy watching this movie if I had ever seen the first half of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) So it's clear to me that I have never seen it that much or or that it just didn't register as much as the back half did. Uh, But yeah, you know, I I, I like the movie quite a bit. It's not my favorite Dante. I think it does some good stuff. Um, 
and you know it, it's not a it's not a movie that i i expect to have like a a sort of like political point to make sure i think it does unintentionally a little bit here and i feel like the ending of the movie while super fun does kind of compromise what would otherwise be like a a very kind of like potent and salient examination of suburban paranoia uh but i I still think it ends in like a very kind of like fun dante cartoonish way and uh, yeah i just i have a blast with it for those who haven't seen the film uh we have a neighborhood, a very small cul-de-sac, uh, where you have Tom Hanks, Bruce Dern, and Rick Dukumin playing these three neighbors, and they suspect something is going on, uh, strangely, with the Klopex, uh, the neighbors of theirs that have recently moved in. There have been strange noises during the night. They suspect, uh, eventually, that they are murdering people because uh, one of their other neighbors uh, vanish, and they don't know what's happening to them. They find some strange bones pop up, and then... At the end of the movie, they're looking for evidence and destroy the Klopex house, burn it down, blow it up, uh, and then something else happens. And we'll talk about that other thing. It's something that you just were referring to, Aaron, and whether that kind of undermines if there is any kind of salient satirical point that the movie is trying to make. Liam, I know that you have strong feelings about that, but hold them off just for a minute. Tell me your thoughts on The Burbs. Uh, I like it. I mean, I I don't think it's a perfect movie uh, in any sense, but... I find it endlessly entertaining. I mean, I had it on today and was doing things that were important while it was on, but I wasn't doing them. I was just watching the movie (laughs) (laughs) because I just, I I get pulled into it. And I'm sure there's some small part of that that's nostalgia, but I think a lot of it is that um, the early part of the movie where we're seeing the caricatures of these people. Like, I I think you could really make a strong case that uh, Carrie Fisher and Tom Hanks and possibly their child are the only human beings in the movie. That everyone that kid, else, by the way, they don't do anything with that kid. No, he's just—he doesn't even have any reason to be there, really. Uh, but, but in the sense that, like, everyone else seems like some sort of caricature in some sense. I guess maybe sure. at the end there might be some other sort of people around, whatever. But it just seems like the the you have Carrie Fisher, who's the one who has any sense in the fucking movie, mm-hmm. and then you have Tom Tom Hanks, who has sense but continually ignores that sense and is led astray by his friend Art. And one of the things I think is worth noting that I don't think people (laughs) highlight enough when they're talking about sort of the context of the movie is that everything, even though Art is correct, that these people are murderers, right? Spoiler. Okay, that was the thing we were going (laughs) to... Yeah, I don't care. It's the birds. all right. Yeah, I got you. Everything Art says is wrong. In fact, technically, he never actually accuses them of the murder they did so at no point is he actually right about anything in the entire movie and so i think you know one of the things that i like about the movie is that this whole film seems to be about the slow seduction of tom hanks by art that just he's a crazy person and he's going to ruin tom hanks's life and you know it is kind of this weird haunting thing at the end i guess that they're actually murderers but it is true too that like um the sense is there and and i do think that this is unintentional i think joe dante just can't help like with gremlins i don't think gremlins is about 
how fucking crazy the town is that the gremlins show up in. <laughs> but he just can't help it, right? Like sure. everywhere you go in this town, you're like, oh man, this is a weird fucking. T- These people are weird people. <laughs> but like, it's not the what the movie's about. I feel the same way. Like, uh, you know, I've seen people get really deep and meta on this movie, and it's a really you know sharp takedown of suburban life. And I'm like. I mean, it has some sharp edges, but it's not the point of the movie. Like, I, I, I don't think, I don't think it's like a, a secret attack at suburban hegemony or something like that. I think it's just, that, you know, he thinks it's funny. This is where the humor is coming from. Is that, uh, it, yes, these folks are different, but the people who are unsure of them are literally being the worst kind of gross xenophobes that they could possibly be. I think it's supposed to be telling the way that everyone keeps bringing up that they think they're Slavic and the way they say Slavic is like not okay like you should definitely hear it when they say it as what the fuck do you mean by that man like what do you mean you know Liam I'm starting to think that you're defending uh, a point that we haven't made yet uh, no 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 I just I just uh, you're right you're right it's just on my brain because I've just been thinking about the movie in in that sense of like what is it about per se Um, but uh, I think that the the ways that I find it entertaining are really cool, uh, but I do wonder if Aaron, your point isn't isn't really what it boils down to, which is that as much as I find the ending fun, does it s- in some way make the interpretation of the movie such that there are going to be people who feel a certain way about that ending that I think doesn't work for the movie? Yeah, you the know, worst people like, will say, "Oh, yeah, that reinforces something." But I mean, it's it's also it, you could make a you could make an argument that the ending undermines whatever the point of the movie is. But that is only if you accept that the point of the movie is something that it might not be. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, I just yeah, want to yeah. go back to uh, what you said about art always being wrong. He was right about one thing: Satan is good. Satan is our pal, right? It's a <laughs> I, there's a sequence in this where basically Tom Hanks is making Carrie Fisher his wife in the uh, film go away <laughs> basically he wants her to be out of there so he says uh that he's going to be playing golf with art and you know she's suspicious about it and he's just like come on i'm gonna be playing golf and she's you know she's side-eyeing about it and when art comes over with the fucking golf club got my new golf club like as transparently <laughs> lying about everything uh-huh. i just think it's the it's funniest so shit in the world and i actually wanted to transition <laughs> there into some of these performances and starting with rick Ducumin, who by the way I really think he steals this movie. I think he's amazing in it. People may recognize Rick Duchemin from his stand-up work, very popular stand-up in the late 80s and throughout the 1990s. Also has a very memorable appearance in Groundhog Day and Blank Check, the children's film, if you've ever seen that. But he is someone who kind of really fell off in the late 90s. He was this kind of visible presence and so much, and then he just kind of disappeared. But here, I mean, you know, Tom Hanks and Bruce Dern are some heavy hitters in this movie, but he totally holds his own. Aaron, what do you think about Rick Duchemin in this film? I think Rick Duchemin is definitely uh, the, the high point of all the performances. Like I said already, I, th- I think Tom Hanks gets his moments. Uh, I, I love the god Bruce Dern. I think he's I love phenomenal so and everything. Really uh, just he's he's just the best. Like the the entire like Dern uh, legacy, you know, is it just mwah, chef's kiss. Uh, but Rick Duchemin really does hold it together. He has 
uh, like more laugh out loud like lines and deliveries in this per minute than anyone else. I'm does. just thinking there, of his fingernails turning black so after he moments. gets shot by the power line, <laughs> and he leaves a perfectly art shaped <laughs> hole at the top of the. Anyway, yes, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, he he really does have a lot of the highlight moments in the film. Yeah, he's terrific. Uh, I, you know, I'm thinking about the the part when. Uh, when uh oh gosh i'm gonna uh, blank on the name brother yeah. theodore i, th- I think uh thro- throws the, the piece of paper over the fence and uh and he says it, he could be anything you know he, he, he's, he's, he's a litter, litter bug, bug. <laughs> he could just be a litter bug and so he goes over and gets it and says uh oh nope nope it's my note it's my note uh it's it's just hysterical like his his he's just perfectly spot on he just totally owns that character and I think the the most remarkable thing about it is that at first he does kind of feel like sort of like a neighborhood nuisance. He feels sure. like a little bit like agitating uh, in, in a certain way. And then as you go along, he becomes kind of more wholesome. He becomes more enjoyable and outright funny. And I think the, the thing that Liam said is, is super spot on, which is that, you know, this movie and like the arc of it is really like an otherwise skeptical and totally reasonable guy like Tom Hanks slowly being seduced by yeah. Rick DeCommon's art into believing all of his like hokum and it's it's really funny to watch and it's pretty cool the way that like the movie sort of does that too you kind of you know you're you're kind of captivated and eventually won over by all of his ridiculousness his ridiculousness and absurdity Aaron did you have any uh, experience with Brother Theodore outside of this film I you know I'm sure that I did this is the thing that I I think of when I think of of Brother Theodore though I know mm-hmm. that he's you know kind of a sort of a, a mainstay and a, a maven of uh, some, like, horror stuff. I, I know he, he did a lot of Rankin and Bass stuff, too, didn't he? I, I don't know about that. I know that what I knew him most for was his appearances on Letterman in the 80s. That's That was, like, he was, like, a regular uh, person, and he would do poetry and really be just a totally bizarre character. Right, 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 right. Doug, and yes. Ask me where I ask me where I know him from. Well, I'm worried that you're going to say the thing that I was going to bring up, Liam, but I'm going to ask you No, go ahead. You do it it first then. Go ahead. I – this is kind of embarrassing. Brother Theodore does, uh, like, narration on horror trailers, uh, on some pretty notable ones, including a lot of the Lucio Fulci ones that were released in the early 80s. And the guy is creepy. (laughs) That wasn't wasn't what I was going to say. Great. Tell me about your experience with Brother Theodore. I mostly know him, Doug, from the Jaws porn parody Gums, from the movie Gums, the porn parody of Jaws. Wow. He's in that film Gums, which right? I've seen on 35mm in a theater with hundreds mm-hmm. of other people. Well, that actually is an interesting topic that I just want to spend a little time on. Liam, I've seen a couple of porno movies in a theater with a group of people as yeah. well. Is it uncomfortable for you? Yeah, I mean, that's the only one I've ever seen at a theater with other people. <laughs> and it was the part where I decided I was done was when um, one one gentleman who has multiple sex seeds uh, couldn't actually get erect at any particular point. And mm-hmm. they he literally has a has a uh, ejaculation scene that they clearly fake with fake 
come and I was like, this movie sucks. We got to go. I can't. I can't do this. <laughs> the guy can't even get it up. Well, this movie sucks. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like I'm already like suffering through all the bad aspects of it that justify. And I was like, well, I, I don't know. It's a sex film, right? I'm, I'm, at least the sex will be interesting. And I'm like, they can't even get the sex right. We got to go. This is it. Why are we watching this thing? It was at an exploitation fest. And it was like, all right, this last one is a real shocker. And I was like, come on, guys. This isn't a shocker. It's just bad. But I complained about it so hard in my review of the thing not that they showed it but just how i thought it was so painful that uh, a friend then found it on dvd and sent it to me so i do have a <laughs> copy of gums here somewhere if i want to revisit sometime. how about you aaron have you ever had the pleasure of watching pornography in a crowded theater <laughs> i have never watched uh, a porno in a crowded theater no i have not had that experience though you know it's it's interesting you know being on online and, and being involved in film twitter and stuff the number of people you talk to uh, who who have had that experience and, and mm. who actually kind of like actively seek that out or or are somewhat like you know well versed in a lot of like classic sort of exploitation oh yeah absolutely and like sex cinema um, I mean uh, the the biggest thing for me is that like Letterboxd finally started like that's uh, true you know allowing people to log like oh, adult yeah. films on there thanks to a friend uh, of the show Justin the Liberty good work Justin that's right. Justin the Liberty there you go uh, and also I think it was actually for like the Letterboxd uh, publication but uh, Charles Romesco who I don't I don't know if you all know absolutely great great, great film writer uh, just so. put out like a, a very uh, extensive uh, piece about uh, like porno cinema not not like actual adult films but like porn uh, represented in movies and it's one of the most like comprehensive lists of movies i've ever seen a bunch that i i had to make note of like i've never seen these these sound really interesting and a couple that i was like very happy to see included uh but check it out read it it's awesome um all this to say no i've never had that experience in a, in a theater um but but other people have and and it's it seems like an interesting kind of thing to uh to to be able to check off your bucket list well, Aaron, I wouldn't necessarily agree with you there, uh, by which I mean, like, I have infinite respect for porn historians. We have uh, several friends who are very interested in that and write about it and have done so much research in that field. We have friends at, the, of course, the Rialto Report as well, who that's kind of their bread and butter. But it's, I went to a few, like, all-night movie things, and uh, the person who was putting that on was very interested in kind of classic porno. And it's just like at three in the morning, when you're already feeling a little tired... <laughs> That's got to be one entertaining porno movie. <laughs> and it's just kind of weird and uncomfortable, you know? And I mean, not the, the, the existence of it. It's just that particular, you just watched a, a black exploitation biker movie and now you're watching someone piss on somebody, which is not always my favorite thing in three in the morning. Not always my least favorite thing, but not always my favorite thing. Let's get back to the burbs, I think. Uh, yeah. Aaron, Aaron, any other performances in this movie stick out to you? I mean, yeah, I already mentioned him, but you know, Bruce Dern uh, always always holds it down. I, uh, I I adore Bruce Dern. I think he's he's phenomenal, um, always and forever. Uh, him peeling yeah, that just, wallpaper when they go inside. Honestly, he is so good. Once they get inside that house, everything he does makes me laugh out loud. Yeah, he's he's got some incredible bits. I I love when he is uh, stationed on the rooftop adjacent to the Klopex house <laughs> and he's doing like red rover into the into the uh the walkie talkie the, walkie -talkie, the, the yeah, remote yeah. yeah a lot forget lost the word there for a minute and then just like kind of sitting up there like 
sipping coffee and eating animal crackers. He, he's yeah, everything he does in here, like his his physical comedy is great. He's just he's pitch perfect as always. I love when Bruce Dern gets a chance to just be you know side splittingly funny, but also kind of with like a little bit of like a, a satirical menace to him. I, you, you guys may have seen uh, Smile, the the oh. uh, 1975 film. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, one of my favorite Bruce Dern performances, one of my favorite movies, period. I, I love Smile, and I think that like that kind of mode for him, not quite what he's doing here, but similar, like almost like the, the more dejected, kind of like frayed around the edges version of his character from Smile. I'm also notoriously a huge fan of the movie Digstown, which features Bruce Dern as a villain. What a wonderful villain he is in that. And I love that his his non-villainous characters and his villainous characters are just variations on the same thing. I just love the kind of roles that he he plays. Uh, Carrie Fisher, unfortunately, does not get a lot to do here, but I just want to ask quickly to the both of you about Corey Feldman. Now, Corey Feldman is someone who's had, obviously, a, a very difficult life in a lot of ways, uh, but were you a fan of his at all, Aaron, just sticking with you, uh, in the 90s? Is he an actor that you have a lot of time for? Uh, you know, Corey, Corey Feldman is someone, oh, man, like, I, I thought we were going to, talk a little bit about Corey Feldman. I, I liked Corey Feldman growing up, you know, sure. I, I was a big fan of like the Goonies and, and just thought that he was, you know, maybe not like a cool guy, but like a fun presence in, in movies. Uh, just a really tragic figure yeah. too, you know, like obviously, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of messiness around there. Um, but I, I always appreciated him when he showed up. I thought that he was like, kind of like a very sweet presence. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I was a fan, I, I think, and uh, it, it's it's weird because I, I know that Feldman's kind of like a punchline, you know, and and I always, I, I see why and I understand it. He is he is a, a weird guy, but you know the the reasons behind and the explanations for kind of his his bizarreness uh, are just all really sad. So I, yeah. I, I kind of feel weird about like you know throwing any punches his direction. Uh, when I think otherwise, like, yeah, he, he's a pretty good performer. There was a reason he was in in movies. I, I've seen people say that he was miscast in this movie, but I honestly can't see who else would do this role uh, and like what, what how it could be improved. That's a strange thing to hear, simply because I think that like it's it, it feels like it was designed around his persona at that point to a certain extent. Right. I mean, a really great child actor. I mean, even outside of The Goonies, Friday the 13th Part 4, Stand By Me. I mean, you know, this is a top tier child actor and was able to transition pretty well into adult roles, at least for a while. Uh, and and yeah, a very tragic figure in a lot of ways. Thankfully, is still with us and, and still uh, acting sometimes. Also, he was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, which was a very big deal for me back in 1990. <laughs> Liam, yeah. uh, your thoughts. Uh, Corey Feldman, were you a Feldman head in the early 90s? Um... I guess so. I mean, only his music, right? You're only you only like his music. Oh, well, he didn't have music <laughs> at that point, did he? I don't think he was recording. At I, I think point. he might have at that. I mean, I do know that he 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 rather he has a really famous performance at uh, the Improv. Uh, you remember that television show, Evening at the Improv? No. There was a television show called Evening at the Improv, which featured stand-up comedians, and one and they also would have a celebrity hosting the episodes. And in one episode, Corey Feldman hosted it, and then he also did a musical number where he. Uh, was dressed very much like Michael Jackson and danced uh, very, uh, very much like Michael Jackson. And uh, that's a pretty, that's a clip that you find on a lot of those underground tape compilations. But I don't think he was putting out records the way he is now. No, certainly not. At that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, No, yeah, for me, like I loved the Goonies at the time when I was a kid. I loved uh, Lost Boys. Like, uh, I think that... In this movie, um, 
I think a lot of the humor he brings for me now is kind of a bummer. There's a couple of points where he's funny, but a lot of it I'm just kind of like, I think that this role is now to me so cornball. Like, I just, the whole thing where it's like, it's cool because he's like a surfer dude who thinks everything is cool. At the time, I was like, yeah, sick. And now as an adult, I'm like, get him out of here. Just focus on Bruce Dern. That's what I want. I want Bruce Dern. I want Art. I want a little bit of Tom Hanks yelling. That's all I need. I liked his classic roles, and then I similarly find, you know, what happened to him kind of, you know, one of the sadder parts of Hollywood history. But I think part of the problem is because he was given this, like, template of, like, the cool dude that he – I think he had a lot of trouble not being the cool dude after this, you know? Like, yeah. he just kept – trying to do the same thing for the rest of his life did you ever see the movie rock and roll high school forever that's the sequel yeah yeah it's bad yeah that's real bad it's real bad i mean i think also the fact that he was stuck doing a lot of those movies that that you know did well but were not necessarily well reviewed all throughout the 90s and and paired with Corey Haim, and we all know that story as well but anyway i don't want to focus too much on that, I want to ask you both about the idea of Joe Dante as a director. We've talked about him quite a bit already, but just the idea of where this kind of fits in his filmography, not in terms of quality necessarily, but sort of thematically, you know, the kind of material that Joe Dante is connected with. He tends to be known as sort of a, a director that loves, obviously, pop culture, loves uh, horror and exploitation and cartoons in particular. Does this, Liam, just sticking with you for a second, does this feel like a Joe Dante movie to you? Yeah, to me, it feels very Joe Dante. Um it it has a lot of the uh, utilization of horror tropes for effect. It sure. has sort of the uh, you know Americana, the under as as Aaron very eloquently put it, the underbelly of uh, American life. And uh, but really, like um, even more so, the combination of like humor with a little bit of like tension at the same time. Right. Um, it, it is less dramatic, I think, than some of his later stuff. It's a little more on the on the caricature side, but I, but I like that about it. Would you consider this movie a horror movie, Liam? No, but I think it uses a lot of of um, things that feel very horror movie to me. But I don't think it ever gets to the point where, at least for me, I don't think it ever gets to the point where I'm really thinking it's meant to incite fear in me. I don't know. Even when I was a kid, I didn't think it was particularly in that genre. I want to throw that same question over to you, Aaron. Would you consider The Burbs a horror movie? I don't think I would. I would consider The Burbs uh, a comedy that is very indebted to horror. Uh, Right. It it wears a lot of its influences very clearly on its sleeve. It even goes so far as to like have a, a fun little like clip show in the middle of the movie where Tom Hanks is just <laughs> scrolling through TV channels and, and you see a little bit of the exorcist, you see a little sure. bit of Texas chainsaw part two. There's one right before it. And I can't, I can't remember to, to save me now. Uh, but it, it obviously, you know, knows uh, what horror is. It, it plays around with some of the tropes of it, but I don't think that it's doing anything that's explicitly intended to like frighten you. Uh, it, it, it to me is is a flat out just sort of like comedy with horror elements. 
maybe that one dream sequence. But I mean, even that is just played as, you know, a little bit of fantasy because he was watching those horror clips because he's becoming obsessed with those ideas. I know that you mentioned before, Aaron, that there's a few Joe Dante movies you haven't seen. What are some of the tropes that you think kind of are prototypical of a Joe Dante movie? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, starting with like 1984 with Gremlins, uh, the thing that I think of that's associated with him and others, of course, but but uh, Jerry Goldsmith's scores. Uh, I think that the score for this one is excellent. Jerry Goldsmith happens to be like my my favorite cinematic composer, right. I think. Absolutely. I, I don't think his, his name gets thrown around quite as often as like the bigs like uh, John Williams and Howard Shore and, and all those folks, but I, I think he's, he's really top tier, one of the best. Absolutely. Um, and, and the thing that I already kind of mentioned, you know, I think a lot of his movies are very preoccupied with a specific kind of like idyllic American suburban lifestyle and uh, just sort of like for some in adolescence or, or, you know, just a, a coming of age in these areas. Uh, he clearly loves monsters and like practical effects. Gremlins, of course, Explorers has wonderful sort of like alien and creature effects in it as well. Uh, but I, I think that at the heart of it, really, it is that thing that is sort of, I, I, I don't think it's even as strong as saying it's an indictment. I think it's a it's a fascination with a particular kind of lifestyle, uh, predominantly white, <laughs> uh, and, and like a very distinctly kind of like American sort of partitioning into these sort of suburban centers where uh, weird things can happen because of their sort of like relative... Uh, sense of like safety i guess sure. and and sure, you sure. know they're they're sort of like relative like uh the, the the belief that they're sort of removed and apart from everything that might be dangerous and in a lot of ways to me that kind of feels like you know joe dante's career since like gremlins really is sort of him doing uh like comedy versions of uh john carpenter's halloween you know sure. like like dealing sure. with the same kind of anxiety uh but doing it with like monsters and and a little bit more like splatter and silliness you know, you mentioned that on your podcast, you're a little careful about staying away from the idea of nostalgia. And maybe that isn't the word I would necessarily use for all of Joe Dante's work, but certainly a wistfulness for the past is something that I see in a lot of his work. I mean, basically, you know, the, the community in Gremlins is meant to be the the, the falls from the uh, from It's a Wonderful Life. Right? I mean, the idea is that, and matinee is certainly something that, that looks to the past in terms of, and also I think a little bit about Joe Dante's pot, uh, podcast where he's very much like talking about, you know, the pictures were so much better back then. They were, you know, they were able to do this and this and this. He is someone who seems to be looking to the past a lot. But I just want to make a little mention of something that you that you mentioned just just briefly kind of offhandedly about the fact that this is a very white movie. And in fact, if you look at Giannotti's career, he's a very white director, right? And most of his, I, I mean, I'm sure with with exceptions that are, are are not coming to me right this moment, certainly a lot of the heavy hitters like The Howling and uh, Gremlins, this one, Explorers, all around this time period, these are about a lot of white families and white neighborhoods, right? And it's not something that they really deal with people of color, people with different uh, nationalities. This movie does sort of try to tackle something like that. And now we're going to move into that territory about whether it does that effectively or not. One of the things Liam and I were talking about before we started recording is whether, you know, intentionally or not, this movie kind of reinforces xenophobia because you have these uh, Slavic neighbors, potentially Slavic neighbors, move in next door. You know, everyone thinks that they're doing this terrible thing. Uh, the movie, you know, shows them, uh, proves that they are not doing that terrible thing, we think, after the house gets blown up and whatnot. And then we discover at the end that whether unintentionally or not, 
whether going the wrong way or not, that all the neighbors were right. They were murdering people. They were evil people the entire time. They weren't just weird. They weren't just different. They were actually evil murderers. And whether that kind of confirms a sort of really unpleasant thought process that does exist in neighborhoods like that. I'm going to stick with you for, for a second, Aaron. Am I reading too much into it? Am I, am I going too far? Is this movie accidentally making a point that, um, that you know, could be interpreted by someone in 2022 or even before that as something really negative? Uh, I, I don't think you're going too far with that at all. You know, I, I think that one of the things that we talk about on our show a lot is, you know, the distinction between like the actual uh, intentionality behind a particular political message and really sure. something that is just like a byproduct of like the political valences that were informing it, you know, around in culture. And uh, so for me, I think that it is totally possible to read this and say that, uh, that that final, you know, kind of like last bit of the movie in which it's revealed that the Klopex actually are these kind of like evil, nefarious characters. Uh, I, I think it undermines some of the rest of the message of the film. Even if you're kind of shifting away from just the political analysis of it, I think it also kind of undermines the message of the movie a little bit. Um, and, and to me, that's why I say, you know, like it feels sort of like a compromised ending. Um, and I don't know whose fault that is. I don't know if it's Joe Dante's fault. You know, I, I don't know if it's Dana Olson's. Maybe it was like studio notes and, and a revision. Uh, but right before that, we have like what is the, the best Hank's moment in the movie when I he finally it. kind of boils over and sure. has his his big moment where he's yelling at art. And, you know, he ends with like, we're, we're the lunatics, right? Us. Yeah. It's, it's not them. It's us. And. I it seems like that. he's yelling the statement of the movie and I'm like, and you're like, yeah, yeah. And then it's just like, no, no, wait, that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, so to me, like, it's one of those things that like, even removing it from like a political context, it's, it seems like that's the message of the movie. It seems like that's a theme, like, oh, these are the crazy people, right? Like it's, it's kind of one of those, it, it's, it's well tread territory. I think of like, what about Bob, right? Where like the psychiatrist sure. ends up becoming like insane and murderous because he, he's undone by this otherwise like really lovable guy. Uh, and and here it, it's just one of those things where like I, I wonder if maybe they thought maybe that was too like dour a note to end on, you know, to sure. have this kind of non-climax where the revelation is just, oh, these guys are are the actual buffoons here and, and actually like the, the ones who descend into like criminality by the end of it. I'm just thinking uh, about Tom Hanks saying, take me to the hospital, I'm sick, <laughs> throwing, throwing the gurney into the back of the ambulance. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it seems to kind of undermine thematically like the point of the movie, even if you're not thinking about it on that kind of sociopolitical level. But but if you are, it definitely presents something that I feel is uh, a, a missed opportunity in terms of an examination of the way that like white suburbia uh, perceives the other. Right. And, and uh, the ways in which they they react to that with suspicion and uh, eventually with like outright hostility and animosity yeah they even make a little joke about what what are we going to do next burn a cross on their lawn now liam i know that you have a very different perspective on this you talked a little bit about this when you were talking about the movie generally you don't have to necessarily respond directly to aaron i just want to get your your take on it as well i think you seem to think that you know these are <laughs> these these characters are idiots and they just happen to be right this one time and that doesn't mean that they're right yeah, well, I also, really quick, have either one of you seen the alternate ending? No, no. tell me more. Well, that's why I asked, because I don't know more. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I was hoping one of you had, you could 
Tell me if it... It says right here, there were three filmed endings to the movie. The first is the one that is in the normal release of the movie, both domestic and international. The second, available as an alternate ending on the DVD version, follows the path of the first one, but is slightly different and does not contain the sequence in which the ambulance crashes into the house or the park where Mark Rumsfeld slide tackles Hans Klopek. It does have a few more scenes, which includes Hans being interrogated by the police, etc., etc. The third and most downbeat ending, which has not been released in any form officially, is supposed to have Ray get killed in the ambulance by Werner. The Klopeks are pronounced innocent and garbage bags are found bound and gagged in the Klopex car trunk, the last ending follows the original ending contained in the script. So the script had Ray getting killed at the end, but all of them <laughs> seems to all all three seem to confirm that the Klopex were responsible. I think for me, I think this movie. Th- this is this is my theory, and you guys sure. can go with this or not. Go Please, with I suspect the script is supposed to be one of these like. Uh, EC comics like a fucking like like uh back in the day crypt keeper John. Sure, sure. Like the whole thing is meant to be not at all about the suburbs and it's probably its original script. Again, I haven't read it, but that's my suspicion. That it's really just about these folks doing all these hijinks to try to prove something, and then only in the end does it get proven. And then I suspect Joe Dante is the one pushing the images of these people as fucking uh, hilarious fuck ups because right. it's funny to him, and I don't, mm-hmm. I, and I don't, I, I, I am a slightly disagreeing with you guys. I'm also arguing against what is weirdly a popular take, which is that this is a very intentional criticism of Reagan's America. I don't think that that's true, but I just don't think Joe Dante can help himself in like mocking these people. And I think like the like you said, bro, Doug, the line about the the uh you know are we gonna burn a cross next to me that's that's every joke in which these people seem possibly like racist monsters is like in defense of the film that's actually why the film works and is possibly very good but then the question becomes does any of that matter though with the ending and i suspect all the additional stuff that's being added in is all these jokes about uh, how fucking monstrous these people are and that the movie originally was just meant to be like the the ending was the point in other words that the creepy oh it turns out they really are killers ending is why the script exists you know that's actually the motivation for the story and it's joe dante going ah no the story is how these people are fucking crazy and that's what i'm going to make a movie about and i think that that in the end he probably should have changed the ending because i do think it it, it does ring a little bit against the rest of the movie but i think you could say because it, you know if you go with the denouement which is him literally like wandering off with his wife, unwilling to engage in the fucking media spec. I mean, Geraldo's coming, Doug, and he's going to leave. <laughs> like, I, I, I think there's a there's an aspect to this that sort of says like, even if these people are uh, exactly the dangerous people we think they are, this is a this whole cul-de-sac is a fucking nightmare this is a nightmare and he needs to get out of this fucking scenario as soon as possible and you know maybe i'm reading my own biases into the movie in that sense but that's still how i read it in the end i just i do wonder if it it tries to go for this ending and this goes back to your question about being a horror movie i think the ending is a hard movie ending even if it's silly that oh very much so yeah yeah yeah, and and i think i think the problem is i don't know that the rest of the movie matches that ending it's Mm. almost like especially if they had gone 
with the original script darker ending, which I don't know that that exists. It sounds yeah. like maybe someone made that up for IMDb. But that, or maybe I, it was scripted and they just never shot it. Yeah. That's what I mean. I, yeah. I, I have heard that's the script. I don't know that they ever shot it, but I do think that that ending in the script reveals to me that the script, in my mind, has different aesthetic and possibly political motivations than the rest of the movie does. I think, you know, it's this is going to lead us right into talking about Dick Miller, but Dick Miller speaks as a garbage man in this, specifically about cul-de-sacs and how weird the people are there. Yeah. And maybe that's that's really the point that we're supposed to get away from it, is that, you know, that small suburbs and close neighbors kind of breed weirdness. And especially when you have, um, you know, neighborhood uh, mysteries, like, like the story of the person who, you know, went crazy, the ice cream man who who went and say he killed his family. Like, there's a lot of stories in a lot of neighborhoods that are similar to that. I, just, uh, I, I don't really way, have an answer. By please. the way, I think Dick Miller is the other relatable character in the movie besides <laughs> Carrie Fisher. Yeah, Because oh, he's yeah. just like, what the fuck? Just stop. What are you doing? Like, I, He's the only other moment where I'm like, yeah, I get you. I get where you're at, guy. Which is makes it even more funny that his buddy is like not on the same page at all. Robert Picardo trying to argue that once the garbage is on the <laughs> street, that it's in the public domain <laughs> and that they have to help them. I never even noticed before. This is just me not paying attention that later in the movie, that garbage is just in the street the entire it's time. <laughs> so fucking good. Nobody, nobody's willing to clean it up again. I, there are so many aspects of the movie that if you pay attention, it's like, does he hate these people? I feel like the movie is about how he hates these people. <laughs> Let's talk about Dick Miller as a garbage man. He does not have a long part in this movie. Him and uh, Robert Picardo, another regular uh, actor in a lot of Joe Dante films, uh, they appear briefly. Dick Miller has a lot of funny moments in regards to Rick DeCummins' character trying to come out and go through the garbage because he thinks that the Klopex have uh, have bodies in there or some other evidence against them. Uh, playing a recognizably gruff Dick Miller character, like you said, Liam, maybe a little bit more relatable than just about anyone that isn't Carrie Fisher in this movie. Aaron, what did you think about Dick Miller in The Burbs? I think... Dick Miller was uh, as serviceable as he always is, ever reliable, doing his normal kind of Dick Miller uh, shtick in this one. I do like the ways in which he is playing off the other characters, specifically Bruce Dern as uh, as Rumsfeld. Sure. When they are when they are you know suspicious and going through the trash and trying to delay them from uh, you know throwing these these garbage bags into into the garbage truck. Uh, there is, and, and, you know, again, I'm, I, I read into this because this is, this is my mode, oh, uh, but I, I, but I, I love the sort of like outright dismissal of like the working class people yeah, who are really voices of reasons yeah. coming in, yeah. uh, you know, like they, they are obviously much more like with it and together and like kind of salt of the earth and sensible than these like uh, absurd cartoonish characters we have in the suburbs and, and Dern specifically gets a couple moments where he's like, you know, Dick Miller says like you you can't we 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 pick up the, the the garbage that's in the can. We don't pick it up off the ground. And he's yeah. like, you're you're gonna pick up the garbage, garbage man. Like yeah, you know, he he won't he will just refer to him as garbage man. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's there's like a a hostility there that's really funny. And some of it, of course, is coming from you know their their sort of buffoonery. Uh, but I, I also read into it a little bit about that kind of like oh you know the the sensible people here are the the folks who are not. Uh, you know, segregated and segmented into these weird cul-de-sacs. They're they're the ones who are like doing real work and like have have experience engaging with human beings. <laughs> Though you might still end up being like a new agey weirdo, like Robert Picardo's character in this. <laughs> exactly right. 
I'd watch a whole movie of these two characters interacting, to be totally honest. I thought I, it just really is a highlight of the movie for me. But I'm glad that you brought up that idea, especially uh, how much that Bruce Dern's character dismisses not just the garbage man, but just the idea that, that him throwing this garbage on the ground, that there's any possibility that he would then pick it up and put it into the garbage truck. Liam, what did you think of Dick Miller in The Burbs? I mean, like I said, I... I... I think he's the one of two relatable characters in the movie. Um, you know, I guess I guess uh, Walter doesn't seem so bad. He just lets his dog poop on someone else's lawn. I can relate to that. But uh, but otherwise, that, that's sh- a shitty thing to do too. By the way, Liam, yeah, it's 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 not that big a deal. Uh, I have a dog. <laughs> but I think I think really like he comes in as a much needed like observer of the insanity that is this cul-de-sac i mean in the end i don't know if it comes across but really the Corey feldman character is also commentary on them because he invites all his friends over to watch what's gonna happen and eat pizza yeah that's clearly this is fucked up but i think uh the 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 way that dick miller is just like what what are you doing uh it is short i kind of wish there was a little bit more of it but it it does what it needs to do and you know i just love him i love him in this role i love him interacting with picardo like i just think like the the magic of their scene together is very good am i wrong am am, am i remembering wrong that he also shows up in the dream sequence does he show up yeah. there as well? Yeah, he, he is does. in the yeah, dream yeah, sequence. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's nice to get a little bit more kind of bonus Dick Miller. There is kind of a uh, famous outtake from the Burbs that involves Dick Miller and involves Corey Feldman, which he just brought up there, Liam. Uh, I was wondering if you could play a little bit of the audio uh, from it just for a moment, just to hear it lovable. Dick what Miller. else could you do with those who Shut the fuck up, kid. We're trying to do some action. So. Uh, if you couldn't make it out, uh, please go back and <laughs> check it out. But it is basically Corey Feldman goofing off as they're trying to do a take, and a Dick Miller saying, uh, "Shut the fuck up, kid." We're trying what to do some acting. What else could you do? We're going to Shut the fuck up, kid. We're trying to do some. I just love it. I can't help but just say, "Shut the fuck up, kid." We're trying to do some acting here. <laughs> Liam, I just want to ask you quickly: Do you think Dick Miller's fucking around there himself? Like he's just kind of fooling around, being like, "Shut the fuck up, kid," and just like to get him to to be serious, or do you think he was like legitimately pissed? Probably legitimately pissed. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you, you got, you got. It, here's here's the thing. It, but bust out right. If you have time, guys. I don't think everyone should waste their time doing this. But if you have time, the Burbs is like the tail end of uh, Corey Feldman's movies that like you think are cool. You know, like I guess Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles counts. But other than that, like the the tide had turned. In fact, that very year. Another movie came out with him and uh, Corey Haim where he had already adapted the I'm trying to look like Michael Jackson haircut. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I think he already had the reputation of being not respectable, you know, of being something of a joke. And so him goofing off. And to be fair, too, we have no idea with this sound clip at what. How many takes is this? You know, which take is this that they're on? So if this is any more than take four, and he said this, I'm kind of like, yeah, I hear you, buddy. Like, he just wants to be done with his day, and he wants this kid to shut the fuck up, and I understand. Uh, How about yourself, Aaron? What do you you think about this uh, outtake with uh, Dick Miller and Corey Feldman getting in it? Yeah, you know, I I have to also, uh, you know, bet uh bet on the odds that uh dick miller is 100 percent being sincere here and actually frustrated <laughs> with Corey feldman like i said earlier you know he's a sympathetic character he's somebody yes, who like uh absolutely. you know I, I i 
certainly know has has experienced a lot. That does not mean that he uh, does not seem like he was capable of being a profound pain in the ass uh, a lot of times. And so, you know, Dick uh, Dick Miller saying, you know, to him, shut the fuck up while they're, you know, getting ready for a take uh, does not surprise me. It's 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 a weird kind of thing, though. Like, I, I have, you know, kind of I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of doing like a, a Yojimbo thing here. I'm in both corners a little bit, you know, where yeah. it's like on, on the one hand. Yeah. You know, Corey Feldman, if they have been, you know, going long here, if it's if it's been a day, if, if we're just trying to get the take, shut the fuck up. But also Dick Miller. Uh, it's the burbs, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're not, we're not doing like, uh, you know, Chinatown here or anything. So like, it, it, it's okay. You know, he's, he's just a kid goofing off a little bit, like, like give cut him some slack. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know where I stand on it definitively, but I, I am glad that we have the footage of it. It certainly is entertaining. I do know. I mean, we have to remember as well that, um, actually I'm trying to remember offhand what, I should, what I was going to say is that when Dick Miller passed away, Corey Feldman wrote some really nice things about Dick Miller uh, on his social media because he'd worked with him several times, probably in various Joe Dante movies and I think elsewhere as well. Uh, so obviously there wasn't any hard feelings there. And, and like, you, like you said, we don't know the circumstances entirely. I just also like the idea that because of Joe, Dick Miller being who he is and having that relationship with Joe Dante, that you know he's even though he has a small role in this movie he has the cachet to tell someone who is at that point a much bigger star than him to shut up and let him do some acting but yeah maybe he was just cranky maybe he was pulling rank who knows but it is a very amusing uh uh outtake all the same we'll put that in the show notes for people who want to check it out any final thoughts aaron on the movie the burbs you know, I think we've covered most of it here. Uh, it is a a Joe Dante movie, uh, front, back, left, and right, I would say, exploring a lot of the same themes. It's got great performances at the heart of it. It is uh, a terrifically entertaining film, uh, even if you just start it at like the hour mark and just watch the end, <laughs> as I did probably a dozen times as a kid. Uh, anywhere that you happen to kind of enter into this narrative, you will find yourself amused, laughing uh and just just having a good time with a, a fun little horror comedy romp so uh full endorsement uh from from hit factory on this one it's a lot of fun <laughs> uh go seek it out however you can terrific how about you liam uh, any final thoughts on the burbs yeah i still love it i i do think um you know that the, the endings is maybe a little a little weird in some ways but uh, but I will say I actually know I've seen the beginning because I was thinking about this when we talked about art when he's eating like the the rib or something at breakfast like he's already had two <laughs> plates of breakfast and then he's gotten a rib out of the fridge that is one of the scenes I really remember because as a kid I'm thinking what is how is no one commenting on him just eating all their fucking food um, but yeah it's it's just a lot of fun no I, I again I don't know. I think I still prefer Gremlins to this, or I sure. or or, uh, or uh, even the Howling. I might prefer sure. to this in some ways, but I don't know. Just something about this, and and you know, I, I guess what it is too is that like a movie I'm nostalgic about is actually pretty good. I'm gonna cling to it pretty tightly because so many of them are bad that I'm just glad that one of them holds up. <laughs> I just like that we can have a little bit of perspective, even on something that we might have a little bit of nostalgia for. Aaron, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us about Dick Miller and the Burbs. Can you tell people where they can find you online and where they can find the Hit Factory podcast? 
Absolutely. Uh, so uh, much to some people's confusion, uh, the Hit Factory podcast Twitter is also just sort of my personal Twitter. So you can see all of my kind of errant thoughts about anything, even if it doesn't have anything to do with 90s movies, uh, as well as promotion for our episode at uh, Hit Factory Pod on Twitter. Uh, Carly is on there as well uh, at a, a separate at that's at Deep Impact Crier. Uh, named such because Carly does indeed uh, cry when we watch the movie Deep Impact, as we all do. It's a tearjerker of a movie. It's very sincere and earnest. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod, where you can get the full Hit Factory experience. We do bi-weekly bonus episodes there. Um, and that is really the extent of it. We're also on Instagram. We, we've been kind of quiet there as well. We don't do as much there as we do on Twitter. Um, but but be sure to, to follow us on, along on, on Twitter. We, we post a lot of stuff there. Sometimes I drop like nuclear takes about my perspective on why I think the Barbie movie is going to be bad and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> but but beyond that, you know, it's, it's just a place where you can find us and keep up to date with all of our all of our new episodes. Uh, it's a pro follow, both Aaron and Carly on Twitter. Really terrific. Honestly, Carly put out a take today that I thought was absolutely terrific. Got a lot of traction. And I, and <laughs> oh, look, I know it's, it's been a, it's been a day for us yeah. in the the Hit Factory household for sure. It's great. I thought you know I figured that you were just gearing up, ready for the podcast uh, here. So you wanted to <laughs> take up as much time as possible with different Twitter <laughs> arguments. But no, seriously, we'll uh, of course put those uh, links in the show notes. I would strongly recommend uh, following both Aaron and Carly. Liam O'Donnell, if people want to check out more episodes of You Don't Know Dick or other Cinepunks podcasts, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can obviously head to Cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com. This podcast, Cinepunks, uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve, uh, The Carnage Report, Shameless Picture Show. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff over there at Cinepunks.com as well as our merch store. Uh, and, of course, they can go to our website, Doug, if they want to go into our archives of not just uh, You Don't Know Dick, but also Praising Kane, How Do You Do Fellow Kids, and and a whole variety of shows. Uh, including the there. previously mentioned Jodowowski. Yeah, very true. Um, and of course, uh, Cinema Smorgasbord is on Twitter at Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. And Cinepunks is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. You can follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And you can follow me on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. But we need to stop talking about Dick Miller right now. Uh, just for now. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. Please leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice. But for now, we're going to stop. We're going to say goodnight. And we're going to be back very soon with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everyone.